Hi, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holt. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Lori Rush, the Cultural Resources Manager and Army Archaeologist at Fort Drum, New York. Dr. Rush joined us back in 2016 for our webinar on data and mapping of cultural heritage sites for the preservation of antiquities. Now, a lot has changed in the world in the last six years, and so on October 19th, Lori will be setting the scene for another webinar on this topic called Cultural Heritage and Human Geography. We invited Lori here today to spend some additional time introducing this important topic before our event in October. Lori, thank you for joining us today. It's great to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. So Lori, how do you define cultural heritage or cultural property? Uh, It's an interesting question and one that tends to come up in many high-level meetings when we're discussing protection of cultural property. My personal definition of cultural property, because I support an active deploying infantry division, is a feature in the landscape where if disrespecting it gets a soldier killed, it's probably cultural property. And of course, that's not a definition that people like very much. But if we're talking about definitions, generally the official definition in the Hague Convention works well. Although I always add indigenous infrastructure and indigenous agricultural infrastructure to my cautionary tales about cultural property. And in terms of making distinctions between cultural property and cultural heritage, when you add in all of the intangible forms of cultural property, I think you're then talking about cultural heritage writ large. Can you explain your role as a cultural resources manager? It's the best job in the world, and it has to be kind of distinguished between my day job and what the Army is paying me to do, and then all of the international training and cultural property that I added to my day job. So Army Cultural Resources Managers are tasked with protecting the cultural property of whatever military base they're uh, assigned to or working at. And so in my case, um, my job is to keep our garrison commander in compliance with the National Historic Preservation Act. And that means that we need to protect any cultural feature on the 108,000 acres of Fort Drum that could possibly be um, eligible for the National Register. And given the fact that the criteria for eligibility for archaeology is potential for new knowledge. We're talking about a lot of ancestral places and important sites with potential eligibility. So we run an active archaeological survey. We do all our own compliance archaeology. And I also handle all the diplomatic relations between the 10th Mountain Division Command Group and our Native American nation partners, Onondaga, Oneida, and Mohawk. So that's just my day job. But because we support the most deployed division, I feel it's really important to make sure that our soldiers know as much as possible about the cross-cultural landscapes where they deploy. So I've added an educational component to uh, the work that I do here at Fort Drum. And what does that consist of? It consists of uh, trying to encourage soldiers to... um, Uh, set up trainings and set up opportunities to learn about the landscape. 
I host ROTC Cadet Cultural Property Interns every summer. Um, I offer pre-deployment training. I work with our division chaplains who are also tasked with advising our combatant commanders about religious issues and sacred property in their deployment destinations. So we also work with uh, civil affairs uh, units that come and train at Fort Drum. Basically, anytime I can get an opportunity to teach a soldier, I try and grab it. So this is really interesting. And for our listeners who may not have a great understanding of cultural property, could you draw a parallel to our own country and what cultural property is to us? Maybe as an example, Washington, D.C., the heart of our government and its historical buildings, historical artifacts, and our museums. It it certainly is really helpful to think about what matters to us at home. But also, and it's relatively easy, in my opinion, to figure out the forms of cultural property that matter at uh, national and regional levels, uh, statues, museums, places of worship. But our soldiers operate at the very, very local level. And it's really important to be thinking about what might matter to someone in a small village that would never show up on anybody's international list of sacred sites or valued property. So one example that I use really often is a pointed rock in the Bamiyan Valley. And it's a pointed rock. There's no sign there because all of the Hazar people know exactly what it is, which is the tooth of the dragon slain by Hazrat Ali to make the valley safe for the Hazar people. It doesn't show up on anybody's list that I know of. But I suspect that damaging it by mistake, because to the untrained eye, it looks like ordinary pointed rock, um, could really exacerbate a conflict and get people on all sides uh, killed potentially. So it's figuring out what matters at the very local level. It could be the tiny fountain in the middle of a walled city in Umbria, where all of the elderly people gather every morning at nine o'clock for their coffee. And we need to be able to be aware of the clues that those folks give us about places that matter to them. So thinking about the example that you just mentioned in Afghanistan, is that data stored somewhere and then made available to others so that they're aware of the location of these cultural heritage sites? Um, The trouble with so much rotation in the military is that sometimes those lessons get lost and it's very easy for those lessons to get lost, even with all of our best efforts. Um, You had asked about partnerships, and I think this is a question that leads nicely into why it is so important for the military to partner with people like you who are experts at putting important places on maps. And I think developing even greater military partnerships with organizations like your worldwide working group is really critical for making sure that those critical places do get recorded and then that information shared back to the people that need it the most. Do you actively work then to build partnerships with some of the people on the ground who can tell you the importance of place in their own local community? We try. In some places, of course, it's much easier to do that than others. Um, Most of my partnership work has been with academic partners. And but one area where if, if people were to ask 
me, for example, in, in my big dream, what would be the most effective method, especially for conflict and disaster response, I would say developing that network of local people who are the keepers of the heritage. And uh, I went to a wonderful training put on by USAID, for example, and they pointed out that um, in the midst of a disaster, if you can link with the local can-do volunteers and organizations, that's where you're going to be the most effective. And so the more we can learn ahead of time about who is the keeper of the local museum, or maybe who is the key barista at the coffee shop in the medieval walled city, um, those once we know those people and develop partnerships with them, then we can be in a position to help them um, when times are tough. And um, I think the first aid for culture program that uh, the Smithsonian and ECROM have works well because many of their participants have, by coming in person for the training, have then been able to take advantage of the network of colleagues that they met during the course of the training. And I had an opportunity to meet two of those individuals uh, from Honduras and Guatemala. And now, God forbid, if we needed to assist after a flood or a volcano in that region, I know that I could call up Samuel and Eva and say, what do you guys need? Because we've established a relationship ahead of time. So uh, I would love to see a worldwide network established where the folks get to know each other, who are the keepers. And uh, then once we're friends, then we're not just showing up out of the blue as a stranger when we're needed. So that's extremely exciting that you have been able personally to make those types of connections and those types of partnerships to understand, to know who to turn to, to see the data maybe beforehand. Um, are there any limitations or concerns about publishing, you know, a GIS layer of, of, you know, all the cultural heritage in certain places around the world? Can you talk about some of the potential security issues of doing something like that? And if there are or if there are not? Oh, it's an enormous security issue because, as we all know, one uh, group's protection sacred site list is another group's target list. And so we have to be extremely cautious and careful about um, publishing information and who we share it with. I mean, odds are we've talked about that idea, too, of secrecy in terms of preventing looting. Odds are folks in the neighborhood already know where uh, the potentially good places to, to go digging are. But we still need to be really, really responsible about how we handle those, those kinds of data. And... Uh, it's also, though, tricky because uh, I have uh, lots of lists um, and, and, and the common agreed upon cultural property, those lists are super easy to make. I mean, you Google name of the area, library, name of the area, archives, name of the area, zoo, garden, uh, do, and you can come up with a pretty good list in a reasonable amount of time. Um, when we share those lists, for example, though, with Defense Intelligence Agency, it becomes secret, which is fine. Um, it, it's important. Uh, and, and DIA is also really good about, if you share information, honoring your concerns about who may or may not see it out when DIA begins to share. But um, uh, it still is uh, a, real, a real challenge. And then 
if you people like me don't keep their unclassified list available, then when you go to work with soldiers in an unclassified environment, you don't have a list because once I give it to defense intelligence, I'm never going to get it back. So, um, or get access again. And I mean, I could, but it would be a big challenge. So there is that uh, challenge as well of where do, where do we keep the list? So we have them when we need them and they're handy, but also so they stay secure. And that it really probably is one of the biggest challenges those of us that care about the issue currently face. Now, there's definitely data nuances here. So how do you train soldiers on how to understand cultural property, why it's important to protect it, and then how to go about gathering these data and then protecting it? Because as you say, it could be on another group's target list. So one of my rules for working with soldiers is rule number one, never waste their time. And so uh, rule number two is if I don't have information that I think can save their life out there, then I'm violating rule number one. So many times if I'm addressing a group of soldiers, I start with ladies and gentlemen, I've got information that I think might save your life out there. And then I usually do have their full attention after that because they're wondering what on earth this old lady has to offer. But once we demonstrate using some of our case studies and the Cree's Kanata uh, Fagara water systems is one of my classic ones. Here you have a feature in the landscape, which is an underground water system that runs for kilometers and kilometers with um, channels that open up to the surface. Early on in the conflict in Afghanistan, there was all this discussion about Taliban appearing and disappearing into tunnels. Well, those were the water systems, and they're super easy to identify in an aerial photo, yet our soldiers uh, went forward without that information. And so as a result, when someone appeared out of what looked like a hole in the ground, um, they were surprised. And that's the sort of information uh, that could save your life. So uh, it's showing them how cultural property supports their mission and their safety. And then you can go on to also discuss the wider range of aspects of saving cultural property forward, which may be respecting places of worship and respecting agricultural properties and why you don't cut down an entire grove of date palms to get after one sniper, all those sorts of issues. So you've given us a number of examples already, but I was hoping you could talk about more of the on the ground experience that you have, that you've um, had working with soldiers um, and some of those examples that really illustrates the importance of the data. Well, it's not my own personal example, but it's another favorite. And that is the partnership between the Smithsonian and Dr. Katherine Hansen, who did her dissertation in Raqqa, Syria, and her partnership with Defense Intelligence Agency on the strategic planning for saving 80% of the ancient city wall of Raqqa when it was time to retake that city from uh, ISIS. And so having that knowledge of how important and iconic that city wall was, while recognizing the military challenges of needing to make some breaches in the wall to bring in the heavy Western military equipment, but uh, to be able to, at the end of the day, leave those citizens with that symbol 80% intact, to me, is a remarkable accomplishment and demonstrates 
the value of subject matter expert partners with military planners. Um, for me on the ground, I've had extraordinarily rewarding experiences. I think one of the ones that illustrated to me the staying power of the importance of ancient places for the people who, where these ancient places are their homes, was an experience I had at uh, Sardis in Turkey. I went with my colleague, uh, Dr. Christina Luke, and we were there on the first Sunday in May, which is an important regional celebration, very, very big holiday. So as we headed up the river valley to the ancient city, there were thousands of people, many of whom had come with tractors and wagons, and the wagons were filled with their extended family and their picnics. And there was a fair and a market. And as we went up to the Temple of Artemis, we encountered a family and a little girl approached us to practice her English. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation as she introduced herself. And then Christina, who speaks fluent Turkish, um, developed the conversation further. And one of the questions she asked the little girl was, so are you here for the fair? Are you here for the market? Are you here for the picnic? And the little girl looked at us and said, we're here to be in the very old places. And all of a sudden, Christina and I looked at each other and realized that we were experiencing the current iteration of worship at this temple that has taken place for thousands and thousands of years. And so you begin to see that connection with the very old places. And it's humbling, and it also is a huge reminder of how important the issue really is. Yeah, it's like the heart of the people in a place exactly. that makes their culture so important. And it's important for us to remember that these places are these people's homes. We think of them as maybe an exotic ancient temple site or as an abstract configuration of the past. But these is, this is where these people live and this is where they worship and this is where they gather with their families. And we need to be keeping those relationships in mind. Wow. I wish we had more time with you, Lori. Um today to talk about this, but we do have more time on October 19th. So we're excited to have you come back and, and set the scene for the upcoming webinar. So thank you so much for being here today with us. Well, I've been delighted to be able to join you. Thank you so much. So please join us online for our webinar on cultural heritage and human geography on October 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll hear from other experts like Lori who will discuss their interesting research and share data related to cultural heritage around the world. You can find all the information you need about the webinar and how to access it at www.hgd.org. And please join us next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHD, check us out at www.hgd.org where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography datasets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. And I'm Terry Ryan. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. We really appreciate your support. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And we hope you'll share the podcast with your friends on social media. Thanks again for listening. 